Shall we pray together? We thank you, dear Father, for the privilege it is to gather in your name this morning and to hear of the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ in these pages that we know as the book of Romans. And may we gladly hear your voice and obey you to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I wonder what makes you think about the power of God. Whether it's the splendor of creation as you look about around you, or the raw power of a thunderstorm, or a natural disaster of some description. Or maybe it's just a miracle that is incomprehensible apart from God. What do you think about when you think of the power of God? Well, in the next few moments, it is my prayer that you will experience the power of God in the pages of the book of Romans. Martin Luther also said of this letter that it is the chief part of the New Testament, the purest gospel. And John Calvin, that other great reformer, declared that if we have gained a true understanding of this epistle, this letter of Romans, we will have an open door to all the most profound treasures of Scripture. So put your seatbelts on, won't you? This is a great letter. This is a terrific series to begin For all its theological complexity, this letter is driven by one simple, straightforward thing. The gospel. Paul can't even finish his first sentence without getting distracted, as it were, by the gospel. The letter doesn't actually properly start till verse 8. You know, in his other letters, in Galatians and Ephesians, Philippians... He simply writes, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the church in wherever, within two verses. Right, Within two verses. But here in Romans, an introduction should only take two verses, spills out into seven verses, all filled with things about the gospel. And you had it read for us in the first six verses. Now, what is it about this gospel that is so distracting, as it were, that he can't stop writing about. First point in the extraordinarily detailed outline I have in your package there, the first point I have is that the gospel is momentous news. The first point, the gospel is momentous news. See, the word gospel is not a religious word, but a media word. It refers to news. It's not just any news like most of the content of the Mercury or the Sydney Morning Herald or the latest antics of Donald Trump. No, this news is the kind of news that transforms life as we know it. Like the news that began World War I, the news that it ended, or World War II likewise. But even then, the news of the gospel is of a completely different order. Why? Well, have a look 
at Romans 1 and verse 1. If you haven't already got your Bibles open, can I encourage you to have a look at it for look what we learn about this gospel in the first few verses. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. First point is that it is the gospel of God. And what is it that the gospel of God contains? Verse 2, the gospel he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. That is, if you really want to understand the gospel of God, we need to understand the Old Testament. It was promised in the Old Testament. It was promised through the prophets of the Old Testament. But which prophets? Which parts of the Old Testament? Where would you go to to hear and understand something more about the momentous news? Why, to those parts that refer to David and his descendants, we're told. But why a descendant of David? Why not a descendant of Abraham or descendant of Adam, which it is at one level, but he, especially at least in Romans, speaks about David. Why David? Because God made precious promises to King David. If you're, if you're taking notes, you might like to take this reference down in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. For in that chapter, God makes special promises to King David that his son, David's son, would have a special relationship with him so that David's son would be God's son. So much so that the term son of God would apply to every king who sat on the throne of King David. Right? The title son of God. Now the son of God doesn't just refer to the second person of the Trinity. The son of God is a title. It's like prime minister. Right? Son of God, it's a title. And so every king who sat on the throne of King David had a special relationship with God, so much so that he had the title Son of God. So Solomon was a son of God. Hezekiah was a son of God. Josiah was a son of God. And my favourite, Jehoiah. Chin, hmm, you like that one, was a son of God. He was a very bad king, by the way, so let's not worry about him. But he still had the title, son of God. The gospel of God was promised in the Old Testament regarding a descendant of David because he would have this title, son of God. But third point. The gospel of God focuses on Jesus as the Son of God. The gospel of God focuses on Jesus as the Son of God. Look at verse 4. And who through the spirit of holiness, speaking of the descendant of David, who through the spirit of holiness was appointed 
the Son of God in power. How? By his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose as the Son of God in power. See, who better to have the title Son of God than the second person of the Trinity? God the Son. There's a difference there. The title Son of God, does that make sense? God the Son actually becomes the Son of God because all the other sons of God failed. Whereas Jesus perfectly fulfills the role as the Son of God. For what is the Son of God? He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. That's why he is called Jesus the Christ, another title. The Christ is another way of talking about the Son of God. The Christ is the King of kings, the Messiah who rules this world. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And he has power, right? He is raised from the dead to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. As such, he has power. He is supreme over everything in every situation. He is powerful over every star and every galaxy, over all the earth from the top of Mount Everest to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. He is powerful over all weather, all rains and drought, all movements of the earth, cyclones and earthquakes. He has power over every government, every tribe, every language, every nation. He has power over ISIS and Bel Ashar al-Sad and Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un and Xi Jinping and Theresa May and Angela Merkel and Malcolm Turnbull and yes, even over Donald Trump. He rules over all. And because he rules over all as the Lord, as the Son of God, you see the power of the gospel, the purpose of this gospel is to bring about the obedience of faith. Come now to verse 5. Verse 5. Through him, through Jesus, we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. Now the word Gentiles, sometimes it just seems such a weak word. It means those who are not Jews. But Gentiles is another word for the nations. The nations. And he's calling upon all the nations to obedience through this powerful gospel, this news that Jesus Christ is Lord. Obedience is the other side of the coin to faith. There's two sides of the same coin, obedience and faith. Faith means trust. That's all it means, trust. It's not a religious word either. Faith means trust. And when it comes to the gospel, it means trusting that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ is number one of our lives. It means trusting that Jesus Christ knows what is best and therefore, living for him, living his way, is always the best way to live. 
Obeying Jesus makes perfect sense. For he is Lord. But I wonder whether, like me, you find obedience hard. It could it be that, like me, you are tempted to care about what others think more than what God thinks. In this world, there are so many voices clamoring for our attention. But which voices do we listen to most? Which voices are we more likely to fear most? Whose opinions matter to you more when it comes to how you use your money or what you will put in your will? Or even your appearance or who you should make friends with? Whose opinion matters more? Is it God's opinion or the opinion of others, like your peers or even your family, even if they say something that is clearly against what God says? Like me, like me, are you more likely to be ashamed of God's voice as opposed to the voice of family or friends? If we rightly understand the gospel, if we really understand it, if we really know Jesus as our Lord and seek and savour his supremacy, then we should always delight in his voice, no matter where that leaves us. For the obedience that comes from trusting Jesus from faith should characterise our lives. Does it? For if not, could it be that we don't really believe this gospel? Paul believed it. He believed it because he was eager to proclaim it everywhere, which included, of course, the Roman Christians. We're told in verses 9 and 10 that he prayed for them regularly and he longed to be with them in person to encourage them. And as you look at verse 13 and 14, look what else he says. He says in verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you but have been prevented from doing so until now in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I've had among the other Gentiles, the other nations. And I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish. Paul is eager to preach the gospel to the Romans. Paul is eager to preach the gospel to the Romans. Why? Firstly, because he's under obligation in his role as an apostle to bring about the obedience that comes from faith amongst all the Gentiles, all the nations. And this includes the Greeks and the barbarians, we're told. Now, I don't know whether you saw it, but there's a parallelism, so to speak. There's Greeks and barbarians. Then he says, wise and foolish. 
I think it means, therefore, that the Greeks are seen as the wise and the barbarians, the non-Greeks, are seen as the foolish. Because, you see, in his day, in Paul's day, the Greeks were seen as the wise ones. The non-Greeks were seen as the barbarians, the foolish ones. Rome was the centre of Greek civilization. The Greeks of the first century, there was the sophisticated, the wise, the supreme. That's where all the philosophers came from, from Greece. Remember Plato and others. Rome was the symbol of imperial pride and power, real power. And people spoke of it in awe and everybody hoped to visit Rome at least once in their lifetime in order to look, look and stare and wonder at this powerful nation. And so the voice of the Greeks was to be feared. The voice of the Greeks were to be obeyed. And the news of the gospel of God would have been, well, ridiculed in Rome. The gospel would have been something to be ashamed of in Rome. But how can you say that this Jesus rules the world? If you were in Rome, why Christians, they were oppressed, they were downtrodden, they were despised. And the history books tell us that the Emperor Nero in Paul's day used to burn Christians as human torches at his wild parties. How would you feel going around preaching this gospel in Rome? Ashamed? You see, that's why Paul's eager to preach the gospel in Rome in particular. Because he knew that this gospel was not something to be ashamed of. Because this gospel, final point, is the power of God for salvation. This gospel is the power of God for salvation. The same power that we see in the resurrection of Jesus to be the Son of God in verse 4 is the very same power that we see in the gospel, the news concerning Jesus. Look at verse 15. That is why, says Paul, I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to bring about salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then to the Gentile. Now, I need to say this, the word Gentile there is not nations. The word Gentile in verse 16 is the word Greek. Makes sense, doesn't it? Because the Greeks were the powerful ones. The Greeks are the ones that you feared And he says, no, no, we don't fear them. We're not ashamed of the gospel before the Greeks. The gospel is the momentous news of God concerning Jesus because it has the power to save. And we're not to be ashamed of it. But the question is, what do we need saving from? Is it just the oppression of the Greeks? No, it's far worse than that. I'm going to cheat a bit and go a little bit forward in chapter 2 in Romans. I'm sorry if I'm stealing the thunder of the next preacher, but let's look at chapter 2, verse 5 for a moment, because we need to understand what is it that the gospel saves us from ultimately. If you turn to chapter 2 in verse 5, listen carefully. It says, But because of your stubbornness, chapter 2, verse 5, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, 
You are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. And God will repay each person according to what he has done. You see what we need saving from ultimately? It's not just the Greeks and their oppression. We need saving from God, from his righteous anger, because everyone needs saving from his righteous anger. All the nations. Why? Because God is righteous. In other words, he has perfect standards. God has right standards as the creator and the judge of all the earth. That's what righteousness means. God is righteous in that he has perfect standards. That we, however, disobey. Why do we disobey? Because we don't want God setting those standards. We'd rather set the standards ourselves. We want to run our own lives our own way without God. Determine right and wrong for ourselves. And that's why we deserve God's anger. And this gospel reveals God's righteousness, we're told. It reveals his right standards as creator and judge. But it is a righteousness that is all about faith. Look at verse 17 of chapter 1 now. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God, the right standards of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It is all about God's faithfulness to his standards from beginning to end. Ultimately, it is about his faithfulness to his standards in Jesus. In Jesus. Because, you see, unlike us, Jesus obeyed his Father faithfully. He met God's standards perfectly to the point of death. And as we'll discover in chapter 3, all the anger of God that should have been poured out on you and me was turned aside from us unto Jesus so that we can be saved from God's anger, saved from his judgment. And all we need to do is to put our faith, our trust in Jesus' faithfulness because Jesus alone met God's standards that we didn't meet. And this is how God's gospel reveals his right standards, his righteousness. He kept his own standards in Jesus. Jesus was faithfully obedient from first to last. And here's the thing, if we put our faith in Jesus, if we put our trust in what God has done in Jesus to save us, if we put our trust in God's faithfulness in Jesus, who alone meets God's standards, then he will declare us righteous. He will declare us as people who met God's standards, not because we have in ourselves but only because Jesus has met those standards and I put my trust in Jesus alone to meet those standards. He will declare us to have met 
God's perfect standards in Jesus and we will no longer be on the receiving end of God's wrath. And that's why the righteous will live by faith. In other words, by trusting in Jesus to meet those standards. By trusting in the powerful gospel of Jesus to be saved. By trusting in the faithfulness of Jesus alone. Not by what I do, but what Jesus does alone. And it's not even that we trust Jesus 99.9% of the way, but I've got to do my 0.1% in order to be saved. No, Jesus has got to do 100% of meeting those standards because I can't do it at all. I don't do anything at all. See, here is the powerful gospel that only God can exercise, that Jesus died to save us from eternal judgment that all the nations deserve, including the most powerful nations on the earth like Rome in the first century or America or Russia today. Jesus rose again to be the Lord of heaven and earth and he offers you and me salvation from the anger of God. And so three quick questions to finish. Firstly, have you been saved by Jesus? Is he your Lord? doesn't matter how many years you've been coming to church. The question still applies. Is he really number one of your life? Secondly, if he is number one of your life, if he has saved you, then are you done with sin? Have you resolved not to disobey him? Because the gospel brings about obedience. Obedience that comes from faith. Have you resolved no longer to disobey him in those areas that you know you find challenging? And finally... If you are saved by Jesus, if you have resolved to, to obey him in every aspect of life, then thirdly, will you live your life and die your death to tell others this amazing news of Jesus so that they too will be saved? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, says Paul, for it is the power to save.